0: This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Dan Doktroff is the founder and CEO of Sidewalk Labs, an alphabet Google company that works with cities to build products that address big urban problems. As Mayor Michael Bloomberg's Deputy for Economic Development, he led the effort to revive New York in the six years after 9-11. After serving as Deputy Mayor, Dr. was President and CEO of Bloomberg LP. I should mention that Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. Dan has written a memoir about his time as deputy mayor called Greater Than Ever, New York's Big Comeback. He joins me now for a closer look. Dan, you just published your first book about your time working on rebuilding New York City after 9-11. Why did you want to tell this story at this time?
1: First of all, thanks for having me, Arthur. It is uh, great to talk to you again, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book and other things. Um, So the question as to why I decided to do this now, it's 10 years since I left City Hall. You know, when you talk about economic development, um, things take a long time. They take a long time to plan. They take longer to execute. And it's only now that we're really able to step back and evaluate sort of what we were able to do, the successes, and in some cases, actually, the things that didn't work out so well. I think there's another thing, too, which is I don't believe that the story of the Bloomberg administration, and in many ways, uh, Mike Bloomberg's leadership, uh, has really ever been told. And so I thought through the lens that I had, which is really rebuilding the city after 9-11. It'd be great to step back and really kind of tell that story, how it actually occurred, and what are the lessons for other cities.
0: It certainly was a much-needed exercise. In the book, you suggest that rezoning New York was key to all your plans. What were we doing wrong with zoning? And how did you change it?
1: We really hadn't done anything. The last time New York had actually gone through um, a major rezoning, which you know essentially means that we kind of say what parts of the city can be developed for what, um, was 1961. In 1961, uh, there were 800,000 manufacturing jobs in the city. By 2001, when Mike was elected, that number was down to 140,000 or so. And as a result, what happened was that these entire areas of the city, along the waterfront and down near downtown Brooklyn, on the west side of Manhattan, uh, really in all five boroughs, were not usable for purposes that are really appropriate for a 21st century New York or a 21st century economy. And so we felt very strongly that we had to literally wrench New York into the 21st century. And zoning was a key vehicle for actually doing that.
0: Now, the Brooklyn Renaissance, as a native Brooklynite, I find to be Absolutely remarkable. Was rezoning a key to this success as well?
1: It, it absolutely was. You know, it was a it was an important precondition, but it wasn't everything. You know, when when I came into City Hall, um, uh, within the first few weeks, I had. You know, meetings with you know leaders of Brooklyn Academy of Music, a group that wanted to create a park on the piers below uh, Brooklyn Heights, facing uh, Lower Manhattan. You know the president, Marty Markowitz, wanted to attract a team. There was the city planning department, you know, wanted to rezone the waterfront in Greenpoint and Williamsburg. There was a business group that wanted to do something about downtown Brooklyn, which had basically become a haven for just back office jobs with terrible retail and no residential. And what struck me was there was no coherent plan for Brooklyn. Each one of these ideas you know, seemed interesting in and of itself, but nobody was actually stepping back and saying, what can Brooklyn become? And what can Brooklyn become, particularly at a time where for the previous 10 years, New Jersey, which is across the Hudson River, Um, from lower Manhattan had been eating New York's lunch, stealing its jobs and stealing its families. Um, This also, of course, is occurring right after 9-11 when 10 million square feet of office space was destroyed at the World Trade Center site, Um, and so I think I my role was to say, "Hey, look, let's think about this borough comprehensively." And we started on a flurry of activity um, that included rezoning, included park development, including infrastructure uh, development, um, in some ways rebranding the city, attracting the Brooklyn Nets, uh, et cetera. And uh, you know, while I'm sure some of what has happened in Brooklyn would have happened anyway. Uh, and certainly we rested upon sort of better schools and safer city, um, I think the renaissance itself really was, you know, in mar- large part the result of uh, having a plan.
0: Why didn't that happen in the Bronx or Queens, for instance?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question. Um, I think, the, you know, first of all, Brooklyn had more assets to begin with. Um, at least at that moment in time, you know you've got sort of downtown Brooklyn, which yeah, well it was disappointing um, and underperforming. Was surrounded by all these brownstone neighborhoods that were really quite attractive. Um, the waterfront was relatively easy. Um to rezone, whereas in Bronx it was just much more complicated with more complex land holdings. Um, to be perfectly honest, you know, uh, Brooklyn before 9/ eleven was a more affluent place. Um, and so the market was likely to work more quickly um, in Brooklyn. And then, by the way, Brooklyn, while the, the office workers there were mostly back office workers and municipal workers, there was a core of a downtown Brooklyn that could be built off of.
0: After your work with New York City, Dan, you helped found Sidewalk Labs to improve the quality of urban life for everyone. What does Sidewalk Labs do?
1: Well, let me tell you sort of why um, uh, Alphabet and I, you know, what, what we saw and why we decided to come together. And we both share a view that we're at the very, very early stage of what I would describe as the fourth revolution in urban technology. And First three, one was the steam engine in the early 1800s. The second was the electric grid in the late 1800s. The third was the automobile in the early 1900s. and we're, I think, on the cusp of a fourth, which is sort of the digital network revolution. It's a set of technologies that we're all increasingly familiar with ranged from ubiquitous connectivity how we are all connected, essentially all the time, to sensing, which includes location services. And uh, specialty sensors that run on, you know, IoT networks and um, cameras and stuff, which are you now ever present you know, there's social networks, which mean that, you know, everybody's rating us, we're rating everything, which means the circle of trust can be wider. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, which are built on a foundation of advanced computing power, and then even new design and fabrication technologies. All of these are digitally based, and they're all coming together and reaching a level of maturity today, but they aren't really integrated yet much into the physical environment. And our view was that, you know, that's about to change things in very, very significant ways. The way we move around is going to change, particularly with self-driving cars. The types of buildings are going to change. They're going to be much more flexible. Our infrastructure will be more scalable, more accessible, etc., and obviously we will have to be more sustainable. I could go on and on. So we are at that moment in time when the potential of these technologies for changing the way we live in cities, and and we believe meaningfully improving quality of life is actually coming upon us. That said, getting anything done in a city is really hard. As a former deputy mayor who had to figure out how to get stuff done you know, I will be the first to tell you nothing is easy. It's never easy. And it's hard for lots of good reasons and lots of not-so-good reasons. You know, money is often scarce. There's bureaucracy. There's not-in-my-backyard-ism. You know, there are fights over everything at different levels of government. There are vested interests who never want to change. Um, and so, getting things done is really hard. So, we think these technologies offer incredible promise to improve our quality of life, to lower costs, uh, to give us more convenience, more time back in our day, to improve the environment, but doing it is hard. And so, what we really want to do as Sidewalk Labs is work with a city to develop a large scale district that can be a model on an integrated basis for. Urban innovation across all these dimensions of urban life. We've been spending the last two years first in a thought experiment, then feasibility studies, and we're ready to partner with
0: the city. Google is launching a ride sharing service in Phoenix powered by self driving vehicles with no human safety drivers as soon as the next few months. They're starting this experiment in a quiet suburb. So, what are the issues for cities? need to consider? And is this technology going to be really safe? Oh,
1: I, I think there is no doubt that the technology will be safe, um, that it will have a dramatic impact on the saving lives in um, around the world. It's just a matter of time. And look, I think 35,000 people a year in the United States die from automobile accidents. And This technology offers the promise of saving a very high percentage of them. My guess is it'll be a generation or so before the technology fundamentally replaces the legacy vehicles that we have today. But as you point out, we're going to start seeing it on the road in more controlled, or at least simpler environments very soon. But, you know, the thing about self-driving cars is that when you actually think about the consequences of them, it is truly profound as profound as the the imposition of the automobile itself we've talked about safety but think about cost you know with self-driving shared vehicles you know the cost of mobility declining dramatically i think cost of living actually for the average family can come down our own calculations is are, are that you know cost of living can come down just from that alone by about 8 or
0: 9% are any legislators concerned about all these driverless cars, any reports of this being regulated? And should it be?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, in some form, for sure, it's going to be regulated just as, you know, traditional vehicles are regulated. Uh, The question is how? Um, The U.S. Department of Transportation, as well as governments around the world, some states, you know, are really starting to look at this very seriously. Um, The you know, But we don't know how that's going to um, play out. Um, We don't know what those values that they're going to seek to regulate for will actually be. So as an example, um, do we want to have fewer cars on the road, vehicles on the road? If we do, then perhaps, you know, what we'll see is a regulatory regime in which, you know, the vehicles, you know, pay in effect for vehicle miles traveled, but with discounts for more people in the vehicle. We don't know how that's going to play out. And, uh, you know, the the outcome of regulatory approaches will determine, you know, a lots of different things.
0: Dan, I've been promised flying cars all my life. And now in Dubai, they're testing drone taxi service. And drones will make deliveries. Will city skies need air traffic control?
1: I think there's no doubt they're going to, in some form. Uh, you know, uh, drone delivery is said it's being tested not just in Dubai, but in other places. Uh, we know lots of uh, several entrepreneurs are working on you know flying uh, personal transport vehicles, and so yeah, there's there's no doubt that it's going to come. I, I, it's harder for me to predict that than it is um, self-driving vehicles, though. So.
0: A recent Sidewalk Labs newsletter discuss the disruption of online shopping and how cities can possibly retain the street life when traditional retail, as we know it, may no longer exist. What's the answer to that?
1: I don't think we know. In fact, that... uh That uh, blog post uh, that uh, we put out actually talks about several different scenarios for the future of retail. I think one thing that we do know is that, you know, because buildings are going to become more flexible, because delivery is going to be cheaper and more frequent, that the nature of the store is going to change pretty radically. You know, if I had a guess, I would say sort of the the street will feel more pop-up. You know, that uh, retailers will move in and out of things, the cost for setting things up will be dramatically lower, the amount of the variety of merchandise that's actually kept in the store will be greater, and the inventory itself um, will be kept off-site because the delivery costs of that will be lower, creating in many ways what I think probably will be a much more dynamic environment, actually, on the streets. I think it could be actually terrific from a street life perspective for existing retailers. Obviously, for many of them, there'll be painful transitions. But uh, for, the, for the city of the future, it could be, you know, really quite dynamic.
0: Puerto Rico needs to completely rebuild the power grid from scratch. What would you counsel them to do?
1: You know, look, I think that it, it, every place is very different. And I haven't studied Puerto Rico's existing assets um, or the potential for sort of new technologies given sort of its natural resources well enough to know. It. We've looked at different places around the country as sort of as we've thought about feasibility studies for our district. And depending on where you are, um the the answer is completely different uh, i do believe that infrastructure over time will be more distributed in some ways more like the internet um with greater resiliency greater flexibility you know but that's not going to be their problem right now their problem is simply getting something back up and running as quickly as possible um you know look, I'm I'm a huge believer that you know these out of these sorts of crises can come a radical rethinking of um the infrastructure or the environment or economic opportunity Um, But you also have to rebuild and get people's power back on right away. And, uh, you know, the steps that you take in the short run will, to a large extent, define what happens over time.
0: Now, a group of scientists propose a five-mile retractable storm surge barrier at the mouth of New York Harbor. Is this a good idea, and is the city ready for another big hurricane?
1: The city's better prepared for another hurricane than it was for Superstorm Sandy, for sure. Um, but, you know, without massive physical changes, you know, like a you know storm barrier or something, there's no guarantee against, you know, rising um, sea levels or storm surges. And so, you know, there would still be, if, if this happened again, a meaningful amount of damage. Um, you know, whether it's practical or, you know, feasible from a financial perspective or and what I mean by that is actually ever been able to generate the, the, the money to pay for it. Uh, I think that's a different question.
0: Dan, Oslo, Norway is going to ban all cars by 2019. What other cities in the world or in this country are there great examples of such progress?
1: First of all, I think they're going to ban them from the center city, um, not from the city as a whole in Oslo. But, you know, look, increasingly, um, we're going to see cities experiment, you see parts of cities, you know, closed down at different hours. Even here in New York, we have the summer streets program on Sundays where, you know, Park Avenue is closed down the whole way. You know, I think this will be a gradual transition for most cities. The hope is, is that if we do regulate it properly, the total number of vehicles on the road will be less, we'll need less road space. And so that over time, you know the notion of the street will be very different i I kind of in my mind's eye view the street as almost reverting to the pre automobile area where you'll era where you'll have um, you will have self-driving vehicles that are safe, that are moving at slow speeds, almost the way horses did, but you know, obviously better controlled. And if you look at a picture of New York from, say, like 1890s or something like that, streets, I think, will become much, much more vibrant in part because they will be safe. Um, I don't think most places will have no vehicles. I think we'll be in a gradual transition to less vehicles and safer vehicles, which will create more vibrant streets.
0: That's very, very exciting. And if I could see New York in 10 and perhaps 20 years, what are the most significant changes I would notice if we make the kind of progress that you're now working on?
1: I don't think in a city like New York you're going to see dramatic changes. You know, I would hope that uh, where we'll see the biggest changes is in the use of data to kind of uh, manage supply and demand of, you know, physical assets, including things like roads. Uh, street with lights will be better timed. Um, uh, you know, the coordination among the different modes of transport will probably be better. Uh, you know, in our buildings, we'll see, you know, much greater sustainability, energy efficiency, et cetera. You know, maybe we'll just begin to start seeing us reclaim um, some of the area dedicated for streets back for parks. And we already did see this in the Bloomberg administration, you know, under the leadership of our transportation commissioner, Jeanette Sadekhan, you know, look at time, go to Times Square today. It's a little bit you know, it's very different than it was. Those are minor things. I think we'll see a lot more of that. Uh, but cities don't change fast. Um, you know, when you look back after a generation or two, you'll you you'll see very dramatic changes, I think. But, you know, most of what you'll see will be just sort of better use of assets that we
0: have. Don't you think that the continued crumbling state of our infrastructure is going to be an obstacle to your modernization ideas and plans for cities.
1: You know, it it will be until it isn't. Um, you know, in order to produce radical change, often you need some sort of crisis. Uh, I'm I'm kind of reminded of one of our big defeats uh, when we were uh, in in City Hall, which was congestion pricing. So, you know, congestion pricing is an idea where you charge for cars coming into a zone. Uh, And we proposed it for Manhattan below 86th Street. Um, And we're going to take that, I think, an $8 fee and commit it completely to upgrading the mass transit system because we saw it deteriorating uh, and because um, we felt that Um, we could take all the money and reinvest it into expanding capacity. Uh, We're actually going to combine the bonding of that fee with a city and state contribution and the capital contribution from the MTA into a $50 billion overhaul of the transit system. Um, That plan got defeated in Albany, which controls transportation, basically most transportation in New York. So here we are. We're 10 years later. The city continues to grow. The MTA, Metropolitan Transit Authority, hasn't invested adequately in infrastructure. The system is crumbling, which is why we had sort of the summer of hell, as they call it. And guess what's coming back? It's congestion pricing. Uh, And it'll come back in some form because we need the money. We got to make the investments. So yeah, um, you know, we have to make the investments. Often it's a crisis that Produces the political will um, to make that happen, and unfortunately, what is most likely going to happen is we'll see, you know, a bri- bridges collapse or roads, you know, uh, that are dangerous or, you know, whatever else that finally prompts people to act.
0: By pulling out of the Paris Agreement, President Trump said he's representing Pittsburgh, not Paris. Yet. Pittsburgh has goals to achieve 100% renewable electricity consumption and 50% emissions reduction citywide by 2030. Maybe it doesn't matter what the federal government does or doesn't do. Cities will take the lead. Well,
1: you know, look, yeah, I mean, I think cities, states, universities, companies um, are all, I think, as committed as ever to reducing their carbon footprint. And that will make up the significant majority of what we need to do to stave off what most climate experts think. Uh, will be a dramatic change in sort of weather patterns and um, sea levels and, you know, other negative consequences of climate change. Uh, But it's not 100%. And, you know, if we had a carbon tax at the federal level, um, you know, we would dramatically reduce demand even beyond what cities, states, universities, and corporations could actually do. Um, If we had more effective regulation than it looks like the direction we're heading, there's still, you know, we'd be better off. So never underestimate the impact of the the federal government. It's not everything, but it's not, not unimportant.
0: He's the founder and CEO of Sidewalk Labs, the urban innovation unit of Alphabet, and he was the Deputy Mayor of Economic Development and Rebuilding for the city of New York during the six years following 9-11. He's just published a memoir of that time, Greater Than Ever, New York's Big Comeback. Dan Doktorov, thanks for joining us. And by the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at at Bloomberg.net. That's A Closer Look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt.